Ding, 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 ding. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of geographically challenged friends explore movies through trivia as an excuse to keep their friendships alive. I'm one of these friends, and today's host, Nick, and with me is... Tom. And KJ. Great to have you back, as always. Additionally, joining us as a guest for this episode is... This is Chris. Thanks for joining us today, Chris. Chris is my friend from college who brought both laughs and expertise to the Spaceballs episode. Chris still also conveniently loves movies. For those joining us for the first time, we start off each episode with a movie quiz, which consists of two rounds of three questions to determine who will earn today's trivia crown. Then once the fierce competition is over, we follow it up with our famous movie rant where anything goes. Today's movie was suggested to us by Nick, which is me. This week, we'll be jumping into 1978's horror thriller Halloween, directed by John Carpenter, also known for Escape from New York, The Thing, and Big Trouble in Little China. Other movies that would have been in theaters with Halloween include The Wiz, Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, and the first Richard Donner Superman film. We start this movie to find out that we're viewing the opening scenes through the eyes of a deranged six-year-old who will be murdering his sister. 15 years later, we find out that he has escaped from some kind of psychiatric facility, an insane asylum, if you will, and is going back to the one place he knows best, which is his hometown of Haddonfield. He comes across some crazy teens along the way, and uh, a killing spree commences, and we'll get into the details soon. This is a movie... I watched with my wife a few years ago when we were just seeing things that might fit the different holidays coming up. And I had never seen the original. And in fact, I'm really not that much of a slasher horror fan in general. I've seen some Friday the 13th. I've seen some Freddy's. I've, I've even seen some of the other Halloween's and I couldn't even tell you which ones. It's not a genre that really jumps out to me, but I was so pleasantly surprised by this movie uh, it wasn't just a murder fest. Uh, there was a lot of very intriguing things that happened, an actual story, and the creep factor is off the charts, uh, not to mention just the the sound effects, the, the music, everything about this movie. So it's something I hadn't had the opportunity to talk about with most people. Not everyone had seen this movie. So I thought this would be a great excuse to make other people watch it so that I can talk about it. Uh, Tom, what are your thoughts? I really enjoyed the the slasher movie genre, and I especially enjoyed this one. Uh, it is one of my favorites. I don't know if it is it is the favorite of mine, but it's one of my favorites. What I find so intriguing about uh, movies like this, and it's it's also the response I have to David Cronenberg movies, especially his his earlier body horror stuff, is that um, very often the reason why. I love movies is not present in slasher movies or Cronenberg movies. Um, you know, the, the kind of the character building or uh, the, the, the dialogue, the witty dialogue, if it's kind of like a thirties thirties uh, hard boiled film or something like that. But instead there's this really kind of deep intelligence that comes in at the beginning of these, these genres um, like the slasher or like the body horror. And how these movies work through ideas, I find really, really compelling. Albeit it's a completely different experience than with movies that I would list as my 10 favorite or movies that are, are really moving to me. Um, and so with this film, there's just so much to think about and talk about 
um, you know, my, my mind was kind of sparking watching this thing, which is kind of a different, different response to being emotionally invested. What do you think, KJ? So I had heard of this movie throughout my life, right? We all have Halloween, um, but I hadn't seen this. I hadn't seen Nightmare on Elm Street. I hadn't seen Friday the 13th. And they were all kind of the same movie. Like I knew each of them had a, a monster in it that would chase people. But again, I, I, I was not familiar. I'm not a horror movie guy. Um, but either this Halloween or the past one, uh, similar to Nick, Rachel, my wife and I um, rented the movie uh, and sat down in the basement with the lights off. And it was a lot of fun. It's a great ride. It, it's a really, really fun movie. Um, I like how small it is. It feels like a really small movie. I mean, everything about it and, and it and it works um, really well. Uh, I mean, the, the tension, everything. Um, so I was excited to watch it again for this episode and I'm excited to talk about it. How about you, Chris? Well, I think I might be the only one that this is actually something from my childhood. Uh, my mom was a huge fan of horror movies. And one of the things that we bonded over when I was a child was movies. And she would be watching a horror movie that maybe I shouldn't be, but I would stick around and she wouldn't kick me out. So I, I watched a lot of stuff that maybe was a little too old for when I was at the time. But that's probably why I am the way that I am when it comes to like the stuff that I like now. So I remember watching this movie. I... I must, I was before 10, I guess it was probably way too young considering, but, uh, it's got a fond, it's got a fond place in my heart as one of the first slasher films. And it's kind of a pure movie. Whereas, you know, Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street, they have taken that genre and cranked it up to 11 and then 12 and then eventually 27 and a half. Uh, this was, I feel like the first one that, that, that kind of defined what that slasher genre was going to be. And it was subtle enough to be like really good and it's one of the ones that I, I i watch this movie every year every year during halloween time it's definitely one that finds its way into the player awesome and and it, it's definitely just a coming of age story so it's so appropriate that you saw it at that time you know <laughs> oh yeah appropriate for sure <laughs> well of course chris this isn't your first time on here uh this rest of the episode is really on this critical question of what would be the ideal snack to enjoy uh while in, uh, watching this film well, I was trying, because there's like pumpkins are kind of prevalent in this movie. It's like the one and only thing that lets you know that it actually is Halloween night in the movie. Uh, I was trying, I was going to come up with something pumpkin themed and flavored because the pumpkin, all the things this time of the year. But in a real world, uh, a real life kind of instance, while we were watching the movie, uh, Annie makes popcorn as they're watching a movie on Halloween night. And instantaneously, as soon as it came on screen, my wife paused the movie and requested popcorn. So there's no way that I couldn't, I'm, real life is influencing art, I guess, where popcorn is just where it is. If it was mine, I probably would have had some, some M&Ms as well, but just straight up movie theater, buttery, salty popcorn is where I'm going to go. You can't go wrong with that. And I was only thinking maybe you could have put a little pumpkin spice on it. I don't know, just to get across of uh, both those ideas. No, no. I was going to say, you could drop a piece of pumpkin pie right on top of the popcorn and just mix it together and swallow it down. That would be disgusting. <laughs> there are just some things that should not be pumpkin and popcorn as well. I think you're right. It's time for Movie Quiz. The first round will consist of the following categories. Each of these questions will be worth one point as well. Michael's around someplace. Poor Lori, you scared another one away. And don't underestimate it. Chris, as our guest, I will let you start. All right. Well, uh, I, I would like to know what it is, so don't underestimate it. It's time for question one. 
Clinical psychologist Sam Loomis has spent quite some time working with the troubled youth, Michael Myers. Over this 15-year period, how many years did the good doctor try to rehabilitate Michael, and how many were spent ensuring that he remained locked up away from society? You need to get both the numbers correct. The amount of rehabilitation time and the amount, do not let this guy out. Locked in. Locked in. Locked in. Okay. Chris, start us off. All right. I'm, I'm not 100% sure. I think these might be close. They might be completely off. I don't know. I think the re- rehabilitation time, he said, was six years. And then that would leave nine years left where he was just trying to keep him locked away. I had eight and seven. I had five and ten. Okay. I think I'm going to go to a quote from Loomis on this one. I met him 15 years ago. I was told there was nothing left, no reason, no conscience, no understanding, even in the most rudimentary sense of life or death, of good or evil, right or wrong. I met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. I spent eight years trying to reach him and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. So the points are going to go to KJ. And the reason I brought this up is of all the characters, Loomis is the only one who truly knows what's about to happen and what's going down. He's very interesting because he's the man of science who is abandoning science for something that we might see as superstition uh, or, or, or even... Well, I wouldn't say religion. There's no real religious iconography at all here. But for, for something that is superstitious or uh, supernatural. And it's a, kind of, it's a man of science who has been trained in seeing evil and seeing something that his profession rejects. And we know this because when he's in the car with the nurse, uh, Marion Chambers, he, you know, he's driving in the one of the earlier scenes, he's driving up to the hospital, he's with the nurse, and he's explaining to her what's going to happen. And he refers to Michael Myers as it. And she says, well, that's not very humane of you. Shouldn't we say he, your compassion is overwhelming. Um, and what you realize is that there's this kind of, um, you know, institution that tries to repair, tries to heal, tries to find a, a psychosis. And what Loomis has realized is that he's looking at kind of blank evil. Um, and it, it's interesting that that comes from a man of science. I would say he's the, his role in the movie is to lay out why you should be scared so that when the scary stuff happens, you've already built it up in your head as to, oh my gosh, it was right. Yes, oh, this is, this is terrible. Um, I, apart from that, do you think he's required in the movie? I think he's your main like protagonist other than Laurie, right? Like he's your way in, like you said. He's also he's going to tell you exactly what you say. He's going to tell you how dangerous Michael is because otherwise until you see that first that first murder that he commits, he's just a guy in a silly looking outfit with a silly, even sillier looking mask. Uh I question that he was able to tell that this kid was completely bad only at the age of 14. Cuz like he the, the original happened at 6 and and eight years later, the kid's only 14, and he's already determined that he's bad news. That seems like it might be a little too soon. 
See, the way I took it as a lot of times people in that profession, they never give up on someone. So if this guy gave eight solid years and was like, even I can't help this kid, no one can help this kid, that brought me to the level of like, this is this guy's bad news. And you're absolutely right. If it isn't for him saying how dangerous this is, we don't know it's there until I, I think it – and don't worry, guys, there's no timestamp uh, questions in this episode. I think it was about 35, 40 minutes in before we really know how dangerous uh, Michael Myers truly is. Creepy, yes, but we didn't know how dangerous. But I think you're right, KJ. He is the, the warning to the audience that something is coming, something you know really bad is coming. Um, so, yeah, and I, I think his age and his position uh let us trust him right he's not the he's not the crazy homeless man he is authority we also trust him because he warns um whoever he was driving with that nurse uh, just like you were saying that that conversation with it why would you call it it and then three minutes later she's attacked and then you're like oh this guy does know what he's talking about so yes the age and the authority um does lead to a little bit of trust but also what he says happens almost immediately so that also builds that trust i also want to say on that scene i'm very glad you brought that up so michael myers steals the car drives away and what does loomis say to this lady she doesn't say darn he got away he said it's all right now he's gone the evil's gone he didn't say, like, that's really strong. He's just as happy, even though this is not what they wanted, that he's not in their vicinity. He's got to go hunt them, but, like, that's crazy to me. Also, that line was delivered so poorly. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, the evil is gone. <laughs> and he's, he stands there awkwardly. So I have, I have two things to add here. Uh, to, to KJ's question about whether he was needed, to get a little meta, to take it out of the, the context of the movie, uh, I think Donald Pleasance, the guy that plays Sam Loomis in this movie, he was the only star, really. Jamie, this is Jamie Lee Curtis's first film. Uh, John Carpenter is a relative nobody. He's done, I think, Attack on Precinct 13 before this. But other than that, he really didn't have too many things going on. The fact that you could get this like classically trained British actor gives you a little bit of gravitas to your film. And if you put his name on the poster somebody might go to see it because of him. So I think that's number one. Uh, and then number two, this is more of a question than a statement. Do we find out later that there's some sort of supernaturalness with Michael by the fact that he survives five different fatal wounds, apparently? Uh, do you think that Sam Loomis knows that that's, that's going to happen? Like, do you think that he knows that he's supernatural at that moment in the station wagon? Or is that something that he learns along with us? I think he learned it along with us because when he shot him that many times, I don't think he thought, oh, maybe that'll just pin him down. He was pretty shocked when the body was not there uh, waiting for him when he looked down from the house. So I think that was news to him. So him calling Michael evil and it was even before he knew that he literally was an it and possibly the personification of evil. Yeah, I mean, just you could be pretty evil, but doesn't make you immortal. <laughs> so, but I, I think he was like legitimately shocked that after shooting him that many times, like this guy is still is not there. I do think he knows he doesn't know what he's dealing with, right? In the sense that evil is is unknowable. It's the opposite of science in the sense that it is by its definition unknowable. 
it's recognizable. We can say something is evil, but it's not knowable in a, in a diagnostic sense. And so almost by definition, Loomis is admitting the, the limits of his knowledge and his experience. Chris did bring up the role of Loomis being played by Donald Pleasance. In some of my research, I found out that John Carpenter approached Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee for these roles, but they turned him down because of the poor pay. And Lee later said it was one of his biggest mistakes of his career, <laughs> not being in that role. I think Donald Pleasance did a great job, though, aside from maybe Tom disagreeing with some of the deliveries. Yeah, I, I wasn't. I wasn't thrilled. But he was a Bond villain, right? He was the original... Um... Blowfield? Yeah, I think he was the original Blowfield, I, wasn't I he? I don't know. I've, I've never... I'm not a huge Bond guy. Yeah, I kind of thought I kind of thought of his casting. Uh, you said Peter Cushing and those. I, it felt to me like a lot of stuff that John Carpenter did in this movie, and I can't help because I'm a Star Wars nerd. A lot of the stuff that John Carpenter did kind of mimicked what Lucas did in '77, when Lucas picked up a British theater actor in Alec Guinness to bring some some uh, fans to see Star Wars, which was just a schlocky sci-fi film. I feel like Carpenter did that same thing a little bit. He wanted to get a classically trained, well-known British actor to play a part, no matter how small or big it was, because it worked for Lucas, and Lucas made millions of dollars on Star Wars. Although not right away, he saw lightning in a bottle, I think. Okay, the two remaining categories are poor Lori, you scared another one away, and Michael's around someplace. Tom, which one would you like to pick? Michael's around someplace. It's time for question two. At the opening of the movie, the audience is transported directly into the film via first-person perspective. We see through the eyes of what we come to realize is a six-year-old in the midst of sororosai. What were the two items procured as necessities to commit the murder of Judith Myers? Locked in. Locked in as well. Locked in. Tom, I'm going to start with you. He needed a Halloween mask, a clown mask, and he needed a big knife. I had the knife and the mask. Same answer. The clown mask and the butcher's knife. Okay. So everyone is correct. I, I looked it up. It was a 17-inch Lampson Chef's knife and a clown mask. But we're all good here. I think it's obvious why I wanted to bring this one up. I know when I saw this for the first time, I got transported right into this movie in a different way than many other movies. Let's just talk about this opening sequence. Anything goes. Yeah, this is kind of an incredible sequence and it sets the themes for the movies and uh, what the movies are attempting to investigate. And not only I think what this movie is it attempting to investigate, but what slasher movies sort of do after this. Um, which is, it is looking at sexual activity and putting it in the context of kind of judging it or condemning it, maybe, right? It, it's putting sexual activity within the context of danger. Um, and so we have this, this little kid, and I think Michael Myers is kind of eternally a little kid. He, he seems to, despite being pure evil, is also kind of deeply uninterested in sex throughout the, the entirety of the picture. Um, but what seems to happen in, in this film and in, in other movies, kind of, it's a little different in the Friday series, Friday, the, uh, excuse me, the, uh, the Nightmare on Elm Street series, is that the people who are more sexually explorative kind of get the ax, 
right? They, they go down quick. Um, and you read different kind of critics about this. Uh, and, you know, people come up on different sides. Is it kind of misogynistic that, the, you know, these kind of sexually active women are, are being killed or, or isn't it? Um, but that, that theme just is for, for the next 25 years, is in like every slasher movie is you know sex and violence and violence is a response to sexual looseness i actually really like how uh they don't really give you a reason as to why he does it you you see that it's halloween night that's what you know and then you follow you don't even know it's the kid right away which this was one of the very first steady cam shots uh, i think steady cam was developed in 75 or 76 uh so 78 it's relatively new technology so the idea of putting the camera as that first person perspective uh, and then you don't they don't really give you a reason i know sequels give you reasons later for the whole thing and then remakes give you even more reasons for why he does it but i think it that uh, that ambiguity that they give you in the fact that this kid just and when you once you find out that he's six it's even more mind-boggling that he would just do this for no reason it seems uh so I, I really like this opening scene. And I, I, like I said before, I watched this with my wife. My wife had never seen it before. Uh, and she actually had like one of those jaw drop, like WTF moments when they pull the, the father pulls the mask off and the camera turns around and pulls out and you see the child literally just holding the knife kind of the, like doesn't move it. And it's, here's another thing about that. Like when they pull out that kind of crane shot they do, it's ear it's it stays for a long time and nobody yes. is moving and i think like part of me at the time thought that that was them like maybe the filmmaker was kind of the editor wasn't great but at the same time it was like they're really making you dwell on what just happened and they're really forcing you to understand that this was a child that just did this grisly thing that you saw and uh i mean that 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 starts the whole movie it gives you like a tone for the movie that they don't really take their foot off the gas yeah, that, that crane shot was amazing the way it, it held, like you said, Chris, and also so surprising because it starts like a normal camera shot and it keeps moving back and back and up and up and up. And and even that was eerie. How did they get the camera so high? And I mean, you realize it's a crane shot. But um, the other great thing about that opening sequence is what happens off camera. So what this movie does a lot is things they look through windows, they go around the houses, you see shadows, you see you're moving through a house and you know other people are moving around in that house. Somehow this movie conveys exactly where everybody is, even if they're off camera, with the exception of Michael Myers. But everybody else, you have a really good idea that she that uh, she and her boyfriend were were moving uh, you know, up to the bedroom or, or wherever it was, even though that was off camera. And I really like the way this movie establishes that in the first shot and then follows through throughout the whole movie. Yeah, and just to uh, respond to uh, a few of those points that were just brought up, going back to what Chris was saying with the perspective, I actually made sure to watch about the height of things, like when he's reaching for the knife and reaching, and it is someone who was shorter. And you, you may not realize that on the first watch. And uh, to Tom's point, you know what's interesting about the sex kills uh, philosophy with a lot of these movies? There actually have been a, a lot of interviews with John Carpenter, and he actually wasn't saying that this was supposed to be about the pure surviving and those in sin getting punished, although the genre like went with it. 
they went with it. So it's, it's interesting to, and he, he like has brought it up on many occasions. That wasn't like his original intent to, you know, the virginity uh, within Lori versus the sexual indiscretions of the others doomed them because he was actually going after her too. But you're absolutely right. Like that is just like textbook for these type movies going forward. I just want to say that, uh, I think a part of that is because uh, the, the co-writer of this, her name was Deborah Hill. At the time, it was John Carpenter's girlfriend, but she's actually probably more credited for the writing of this film than John Carpenter is. And she has said multiple times that she just wanted to depict what a woman's life was as a teenager in this time. Like, So I, 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 you're absolutely correct that I feel like other slasher movies that come out after this definitely go after the or depict the idea of, of sex is bad and, and being chased is good. Uh, but I, I do feel like this one, maybe it, it was the first one that kind of showed that. Yeah, I, I do think that um, it, it's more complicated than, than sex is bad. I, I think what you see is the, well, the, the people who are more sexually explorative are, are killed in this. You know, and Lori is, is much more conservative at least in terms of, of her sexuality. Um, in, in other movies, it's a little more complicated. I'd, I'd say like A Nightmare on Elm Street, a lot of the, the surviving women are, are also sexually active, although they are too, maybe a little more conservative. Like Nancy from A Nightmare, is, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street is, has a boyfriend, but she's maybe more conservative than the, the other women in it. And that's true of, of other women in the series. Um, I, I do think that the movie isn't trying to punish women you know i I think that's actually wrong um you know and and i think the uh that the the kind of final girl system proves that you know it's women who defeat these creatures not just michael myers but all of them right (laughs) be it the pinhead from hellraiser or freddie freddie is always defeated by a female lead until you get to like Freddy versus Jason, I think that's when it changes. Um, but with regards to that opening sequence, it, it's hard to kind of ignore the fact that a child is murdering his sister just after she had sex and she's still naked. <laughs> right? there, there's something about that. And, and Michael continues to murder people who are either going to have sex or just finished having sex. Um, and the the people he's killing, some of them are are nude. I mean, two of the women he kills, two of the three women he kills in this picture are, are actually nude. And um, yet his response to this is is not what a 21-year-old should should respond. His response is just purely violence. Um, and so there is this kind of, you know, uh, element of lust in the picture that's that's met with violence, that whatever this evil is, it isn't attached to anything kind of sexual or human, at least. It was interesting. And one of the uh, rebuttals that Carpenter would give and Deborah Hill, I forget which one it was, but they were going to say, no, no, no. They, the reason they died is because they were too busy having sex. They didn't know what was going on around them. <laughs> so it, they kind of brushed it off. But it is funny to see how that played out. Um, so we have one more question in round one. And the category is, Poor Lori, you scared another one away. It's time for question three. The lead character, Lori, played by a young Jamie Lee Curtis, catches the eye of a secret admirer fairly early in the film. Prior to any murders occurring in Haddonfield, 
what were the scenes in which Michael Myers in full creep factor stalked Laurie? We're going to keep going from person to person until we uh, exhaust all of the events that occur. And I'm going to start with KJ. Okay, we'll start with an easy one. Um, she was in the classroom learning about fate, I believe. She looked out, and there he was, and then he wasn't. Yes, he was kind of watching her while she was at school. And we're going to go to Chris for the next one. Well, there was that time where there were, the three of them are walking home, and then I believe it's Linda decides to go to home. Annie and Laurie are continuing down, and they see him kind of sidle, like sidle out from behind the bushes. And then he goes kind of back, and Annie goes to approach, and she's not there. But I'm going to say when he's lurking behind the bushes. That's definitely the one, and where the category name came from. <laughs> it was around that sequence. She says, you scared away another one because no one was there. Tom. When he, Michael, is driving in the car, and he sees the three girls, and he passes them, and one of them yells out hey mr speed kills and then he stops um and they get really scared yes and that's also when uh laurie was saying she forgot her chemistry book <laughs> but yes that's exactly the sequence we're gonna go back to kj uh over by the hardware store he was by the hardware store but that was with loomis okay not with laurie unless chris you have something uh there is a section of this film where annie is driving a car and driving Laurie around, they're smoking pot. Apparently, they're smoking pot. And the station wagon being driven by Michael is behind them. And it is at the conclusion of that scene where they drive by the, the hardware store. And Laurie and Annie stop to say hello to the sheriff. And then, lo and behold, Pleasance comes up. You see him. He's looking in the wrong direction as the station wagon makes a left-hand turn right behind him. We're going to give KJ that the go, and that, there's a little gray area there. Um, but at the same time, Chris, I'm going to take that as your answer for following in the car, following in the car. And just because you can, we can get really granular with the car following scenes, I'm going to count this as up to the point where he parks when they're babysitting, okay? Because there's a lot of – we could really dissect some of the following in car scenes, but yes – when she first goes to the Myers house to drop off the keys. Yes, her father will be trying to sell that dilapidated shack, and uh, she hides the key under the mat, and uh, he's, he's definitely looking at it through the window there. So we don't see it, but we see it from his perspective. And I'm going to go back to KJ, right? Yeah, if you're giving Chris the answer, or if you're giving Chris credit for that last one, then yeah, it would be back to me. I think I'm out. I really only remember before he starts really terrorizing everybody. I'm not, I, I don't have any times after that. Okay, I'm going to go uh, to Chris. Yeah, unfortunately, I think I'm pretty much out. The last one I had was at the, at the Myers house. Oh, I have one more. Tom, yeah. Tom you can take it away. He is in the neighbor's yard looking in at Lori after she gets home. And then she's on the phone yes. with Linda is her name. And is like, oh, it's old man's blah, blah, blah house. And Linda goes, well, I bet it's just old man, blah, blah, blah. Totally. Yeah, I can't remember if it was Linda or what's her name? Uh, yeah. If the, if the character Nancy? says totally, it's definitely Linda. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. It's Linda. Um, yes. She, he was staring at her through the clotheslines looking into the window. And then he's not there. So the point 
Sorry, uh, the point is going to go to Tom, but a valid effort by all. And talk about creep factor. I mean, these were great because this is all in the buildup. Nobody has been murdered yet. The great thing about him being there and then not being there makes you feel like he could always be right off camera. You feel like he's always there because you don't know if he's not not there. I think that was a great time to talk about the mask. <laughs> Just the idea of that, like that blank expression. So I don't know, I don't know if you guys know this or if any if any of the listeners know this, but that's actually William Shatner. So when they wrote the script, if you look at the regular script, it, it just says plain mask. It doesn't actually have any kind of uh, description of what it should be. And one of the set designers went to a Halloween store, went to a toy store and bought some masks and they bought two. And the one that they ended up using was they took a William Shatner Star Trek mask, stretched it out a little bit to make it look a little less like William Shatner and just painted it completely white. And it was just, that's the, that's the look. I mean, it was that he had two choices and he chose that look and it, it's really, really creepy. And it's, it looks almost like dead. Like the eyes are in, indeed dead when you look at it because it's just two black holes. Yeah. I actually um, read up about that too. The Captain Kirk, William Shatner mask. And the other one that they had it down to was actually going back to the opening sequence. It was a clown mask with some like red hair or something like that. But when they compared it and they saw that dead blank stare that you were saying, and I think the guy also had more visibility out of it too with the eyes. Uh, there was no question that that was the creepier one to go with. Yeah. I think the, the mask hits home the, um, the ambiguousness of who he is and how much it doesn't matter. It's, it's all blank. It's, it's not personal. It's depersonalized. And there isn't, there isn't an identity there. I mean, the idea of a mask, right? When you wear a mask is in part, you're adopting an identity. You know, you're, you're, you're playing the Halloween game, right? You're being Superman or Batman or Elsa from frozen or, or you know, whatever it is. Um, <laughs> I have strange Halloweens. Um, <laughs> and at the same time, you're concealing your own identity. So there's this game between these two factors, um, pretend and concealment. And by making the mask entirely white, by not going with the clown thing or, or, or something else, um, what you end up doing is you just have concealment. You just have the absence of identity. And so a, a thing with a name and a weakness and features and, a, you know, a, a, a psychology is something that can be damaged or eliminated. Something that is defined by its absence, its, its kind of pure negativity is, you know, much more frightening because we can cast upon it our, our worst fears. And at the same time, we can't unwind those fears. There's no point at which we can pick apart the weaknesses i couldn't help but think of the prior movie we watched it was m and the reason i thought about it when i was watching this film is there was a weird sequence in that movie where they set it up where i was almost feeling sympathy for the murderer because he was in a sense of in a very weakened state and hiding from the mob who wanted to kill him. And you almost forgot that he was the bad guy who was killing children. Uh, it was very well done. In this movie, you never sympathize, or at least I never sympathize with Michael Myers. That blank, there's no expression. Whereas Peter Lorre, 
in the other episode we watched, he has crazy expressions that run the gamut. We have nothing on this one. So I just, it made me think of that because I had just recently watched both those movies that that mask and the portrayal of Michael Mar is devoid of any kind of attachment from the audience. To go, to go back to, uh, to Tom's point, there is a scene uh, where he's struggling. He's killed everybody else and he's finally gotten himself to Lori. Uh, and Lori actually rips the mask off of Mike. And then Mike goes out of his way right before uh, Sam Loomis shoots him. Mike goes out of his way to grab the mask and struggle to get it back on his face really quick. So I'm curious. And they, once again, sequels and everything else, they kind of delve into this stuff. But in this movie, in that one scene, it's like he's trying to hide his own identity, whether it's from laurie or whether it's from the world or whether it's from himself i don't know but like the mask is almost like comforting to him in in this fact and yeah there's something childlike about it right there is you know a, a part it's it's an absence of identity like i said before another reading of it is that you know this is the the kind of eternally evil child you know he uh he, he can't not play dress up anymore um because there is no other real reason for him to go get a mask he's not particularly interested in anonymity or like getting away with it this this is not this is not a crime that he wants to kind of escape punishment for i mean he has no interest in what happens after you know the day after right he has he has no time horizon these these are crimes not committed with a time horizon um and and so it's almost like the point of the crime is is the crime itself which involves depersonalization both himself by keeping the mask on by by losing his identity and also depersonalizing the individual turning them into a corpse turning them into um you know body number three or whatever it is uh, i i don't quite know how a reading of him as child kind of fits into there um other than you know the, the kind of desexualized person he is yeah, so th those are kind of my twin readings. He's either this kind of uh, eternal evil child or he is, you know, non-person extraordinaire. Well, that concludes round one. Uh, we'll be right back after this quick commercial break for some more questions. See you in a moment. This summer... It's not the locust. Paul, I thought you said you killed all the cicadas. The cicadas are an entirely different plant-sucking creature. They're back. Zombie cicadas, cover your crops. And we're back for round two. The current points are Tom and KJ tied with two points and Chris close by with one point. In round two, each one of these questions will be worth two points, so it's anyone's game. The categories for round two include Haddonfield is 150 miles from here. Ooh, he's going to get you. And it was the boogeyman. 
Chris, I'm going to let you start again. Let's go with the boogeyman. It's time for question four. Tommy, the boy that Lori babysits for regularly, has questions and concerns about the boogeyman. At the end of the movie, Lori is now the one who also believes in the boogeyman. What is the strongest argument presented by Halloween that Michael Myers is the boogeyman? This is a subjective question. The strongest answer wins the points. And there's a potential for partial credit. Locked in? Locked in. Locked in. I'm going to switch it up. Tom, how about you start us off? Okay. I will say the strongest evidence that he is the boogeyman is that nothing can stop him from pursuing victims. Not even death, apparently, or mortal injury will prevent him from attempting to kill. A very similar answer. I have, he can't die. He's kind of like the Terminator. He just keeps coming and coming and coming. Um, and that elevates him to boogeyman status. Well, I was originally going to say it was because he can't die because he literally gets wounded five times and survives all of them. But I'm going to go out on a different limb and say it's just because it, like, without any explanation in this movie, he kills for what we seem to be no reason other than they're in his hometown and he's turned 21. Like you find out later, there's a connection between Laurie and him and like, once again, sequels, but for this movie as, as a singular entity, if this was all you ever saw, there's, it's literally no reason he's, he escapes, he kills and he does it without any kind of justification or motive or anything. He's just a complete terror and evil who also can't die. These are all great answers. Uh, I'm going to read a related quote and then give who's going to get the points. So there's a scene I, I thought was interesting where Lori's talking to Tommy and he's kind of bugging her about the boogeyman. And he's like, and Lori's like, we're getting nowhere. Look, the boogeyman can only come out on Halloween, right? Well, I'm here. I'm not about to let anything happen to you. Tommy's like, promise. And she goes, promise. I thought it was pretty interesting because she actually kept her promise. The boogeyman did come and she did protect him. But when it comes down to the answers, I think the fact that uh, Chris brought up that there's absolutely no reason for these things and these can just happen. And it happened to be on Halloween. Uh, I'm going to give Chris the full points. However, I do like KJ and Tom's answers. So they're going to get one point on this. But I just thought this was uh, an interesting one to bring up about how Tommy was afraid of the boogeyman. And then he's actually the one who kind of saw the boogeyman doing these different things. And there's also an end sequence where Loomis actually verifies that he is the boogeyman. But just uh, movie trivia. Who, you know who plays Tommy in Halloween part six, The Curse of Michael Myers? No idea. Paul Rudd. <laughs> really? Yeah, Tommy come, Tommy becomes a obsessed with Michael Myers in part six. And it ends up being this, the plot of the movies, like there's this cult surrounding Michael Myers that like something to do with the way he's able to resurrect. I don't know. It was really stupid, but yeah, that's who plays Tommy later on. Another, another random trivia from this movie. And I only know this because uh, my wife watches uh, a lot of those real housewives shows. And one of them, I believe it is, is it Beverly Hills? Okay. 
Uh, one of the shows is Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, and one of the characters in there, Kyle Richards, she is the young girl uh, in this movie. And they actually, I did not see the sequel. Is it the one that just came out or is coming out? She's in whatever the- 2018 is when the, the rebooted sequel okay. came out. I think she was in that. I don't know the role. I did not see it. But there's another random person that has showed up in pop culture. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's interesting. The the children, you know, especially Tommy, are are attuned to the threat. It's like the children and Loomis, and no one else, um, you know. And so Tommy is kind of able to warn him. And is it Sally? Sally's the other. Is the girl Annie? Annie. Okay. Annie is sort of a, a kind of a, a completely oblivious, but she gets on it on board when Tommy says it, right? Oh, are you are you talking about the small, the small, the small child? The small child, that's yeah. Being, oh, Lindsay, yeah, that's Lindsay. Lindsay, Lindsay. Okay, Lindsay. Yeah. She gets on board when the, the guy's attacking them. Oh, when house. he attacks. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It just they hide in be... one closet, and he, she yeah. and and uh, Lori goes in another closet. To kind of jump off of the boogeyman thing, like kind of like take a tangent from it. I think it was interesting that this woman was kind of like evil in suburbia. Like, there's always kind of, you know, if you go to a war zone, it's dangerous kind of thing. But, like, this was shot, they, they, I know for a fact that Deborah Hill actually grew up in Haddonfield, New Jersey, which is why they chose Haddonfield as the name of the town, because there's a Haddonfield and a Springfield in almost every state, I think. Uh, but it's basically, it's what you see on screen, even though that's Pasadena. Uh, they're looking for that quaint 1950s, 1960s, idyllic suburban community. And the idea that evil can lurk there is kind of boogeyman-ish in the idea of, you know, bad stuff can happen even in what appears to be the safest of neighborhoods. I also thought was really, and I, I keep using the word creepy because that's a big thing that comes to mind when I watch this movie, is that a lot of these movies, all the bad stuff happens in the lurking in the shadows. What's really creepy is... He's driving around in the day with his mask on. He's standing in random places with in clear sight, but nobody can see him except for a select few. That in itself, I thought was really well done and super creepy. Now we just understand things jump out. and But just the fact that it was in plain sight, but not everyone was looking. And to, to bring together your two guys' observations and points, um, it, it's the suburbs are kind of this site of like normalness and normativity. It's a, it's a place where, um, it, I guess a fairly recent invention too, right? It's something out of the 1950s. Um, but, but it's also, uh, like you were saying, Chris, a safe place, but it's also a place of norms where the normal thing is. Um, and what we're introduced with, with Michael Myers is somebody who is on the outside of normalcy in every single way. And it's interesting, like the point you, you bring up, Nick, that he's outside wearing a mask and no one notices, except for, for Tommy, you know, who notices when he's first bullied and then later um, he notices him outside on uh, walking between the houses. Um, and, you know, no one can notice this this other this this non-normative thing until it comes and rips apart these actual households these families and so yeah that's an interesting observation on on, on, on for both your parts because mm. it is it's not it's interesting they can't see something non-normative until it knifes them so we have two remaining categories 
They are Haddonfield is 150 miles from here, and ooh, he's gonna get you. Um, let's go Haddonfield. Oh, go ahead, Tom. What? I was gonna say, yeah, go go with Haddonfield because I want to hear Nick say, "Ooh, he's gonna get you again." <laughs> <laughs> it's time for question five. Many declare Halloween to be the catalyst that led the golden age of the subgenre slasher horror film, which roughly lasted from 1978 to 1984. During this period, there were numerous victims who tragically lost their lives. What was the total kill count of unfortunate Illinois residents taken by the hands and knife of Michael Myers during this film? I'm looking for the total number. Locked in. Locked in. Locked in. Chris, what was the number? Uh, well, okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna adjust this a little bit. There were five humans that Michael Myers killed, and there were actually two dogs killed by Michael Myers too, which is even more egregious. So, five humans and two animals. I had the same thing. I had five. Um, I, I, say I forgot about the dogs, but I wasn't <laughs> thinking about them. So, based on the way the question was phrased, and while it is unfortunate that two pups were. Uh, taken in this film, although not literally. I <laughs> uh, don't want to get anyone uh, get their feathers ruffled there. The answer is five human residents of Illinois were killed during this movie. So I just thought it would be fun to go through these and talk about them. And I'll just recount what they are, and then we can dig deeper if we so choose. So, of course, the first one is Michael Myers' sister, Judith Myers. The one that some people might have missed, but nobody here did because you guys are super diligent, is the driver of the pickup truck from Phelps Garage on his way back to Haddonfield. We see, although Loomis does not see him in the, uh, I think it was um, Hay uh, that he was killed. And then there's Annie who passed away, uh, Bob, which is an interesting one to talk about maybe, and Linda, all were killed by Michael Myers. To go with the, 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 the second one, we've already talked about the first one quite a bit. Uh, to go with the second one, I think that's, it. that's an important one to, to, to recognize only because that's where he gets his iconic jumpsuit. So it, it, like we see him all the time and he's got these blue overalls on. It's, we're led to believe since we find that delivery, that, that driver also has, a sh has no shirt on, we're led to believe that that's where Michael gets his, like, his jumpsuit from. I totally missed that. And that makes perfect sense. I, I I thought it was just a random kill along the way, but you are absolutely right. I don't know how I missed it. My my one problem with it is why didn't you take that truck? Yeah. A, it's a really cool looking truck. And B, the other one says the property of the state of Illinois on it. And people are going to look suspicious of that maybe. But I guess you could drive around with a white mask and nobody cares. So you could drive whichever, whatever you want. Is it possible that he does not know how to read? Is that possible? Well, Six-year-olds can read, can't they? But not ones who are pure evil. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I'm just kidding. It, well, he also is, what we learn is that he's never learned how to drive and yet he drives perfectly. He has enough knowledge to do what he's going to do. He's a lot like the Terminator in that sense, right? I mean, the Terminator has enough knowledge to pursue and kill people. Um, you know, Michael Myers has enough knowledge to just kind of wreck havoc. Uh, yeah, but I think the gas station person or the tow truck person is interesting too because it's the first person he's killed in 15 years right i mean this is a thing he's he must have a compulsion to do 
And now he's finally able to indulge that compulsion again. And the movie doesn't really take time with that at all. I mean, it's kind of a, a throwaway body. Yeah, the only, the only other thing you get out of that scene is that he picks up the matchbook that was on the dashboard of the, of the station wagon. So that's how Pleasance knows that that's where Michael had been. Even though he doesn't see the dead body, he knows that Michael was there and he is going in that direction. One of the things I was going to bring up in a prior conversation we were having here, and then I really uh, immediately realized that it was invalidated due to this scene. So I was going to say something that he only kills when he's wearing a mask, but there's a very good chance that this kill occurred before that because he had just escaped the insane asylum. So that is a very interesting part of the story, even though we don't get a lot of information about the driver. I also think uh, the ability that he can just innately drive may be our first glimpse that he is more than human, that there is some other innate abilities that he has, whether they're good or bad, we find out are not good. But I think that's something that we see, like how could he know how to instinctively drive? Because we're led to believe he gets the mask when he's in Haddonfield, right? That he got that from he the hardware store. He gets it from the store. hardware store, yeah. Yeah, so, so when... he definitely that, doesn't yeah. have it. Yeah, when that sequence occurs, they say they, that there were three things missing from the hardware store. The ho- a Halloween masks, rope, and a couple of knives. Now, I don't know if the rope actually came into play anywhere. That was something I was going to bring up with you guys later in Movie Rant, but we kind of jumped into it here. But, I mean, the masks and the, the knives, unless it truly was some kids, but I, I think that's where we were brought to believe he got the mask. Yeah, I, I think you wouldn't spend time with that in that scene without, um, without it being meaningful. Uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm, I don't remember him using the rope. Maybe he hangs that one guy upside down with the rope. Um, that, that's the only thing I could think of. The only one who gets strangled is linda and that's with the uh, cord from the phone but he does when when um uh laurie opens the door the dead body of the boyfriend swings down so he might be on a rope but it's, it's sort of hard to tell that could be possible. yeah i i mean present what i mean the, i think maybe one of the reasons why the gas station death isn't isn't taken the time isn't spent with it is that michael is interested in presentation <laughs> so you know when he arranges the bodies in the room they're they're it's done in a, in an aesthetic he has an aesthetic and when he kills the gas station guy it's it's purely functional it's not for you know it, it's not to um it's not to stage a scene so maybe that's not we're not given time with it it wasn't show and tell yeah exactly <laughs> i was actually going to bring that up like he i it's, it's kind of strange. It's not all about the killing for him because he just kills Bob and he just kills Linda and he just kills Annie and they're all in different places. And then he moves the bodies and then arranges them in such a way that when Lori walks in the door, it's almost as if they're being presented to her, whether that's in some sort of a weird way, a gift as weird as that might sound or like, who knows like why he's doing it. But not only is he performing these grisly acts, but he's also then taking those bodies and, and, changing their position and giving them a presentation feel to it. it's very very creepy and it's a whole other layer of like his evilness you know what's crazy when you were saying that it made me think of and again talking about dogs sometimes they bring home the darnest things as gifts it kind of has that vibe to it it's like what you didn't want a dead bird i knew you wanted a dead bird <laughs> you know? well, he's having fun too 
So when he kills the the blonde girl who was in Carrie, what's her name? Uh, PJ Souls. She's PJ Souls. Thank you. Yeah, Linda. Linda yeah. Um, when when he kills her, before he does, he dresses up like a ghost. <laughs> he puts on a sheet and stands there for and, no reason he and bob's glasses <laughs> and bob's glasses yes. yeah so he yeah that was like one part that was almost like comedic yeah uh, in this movie. yeah he's having fun i i think maybe maybe that's an aspect i mean he's such a blank he's such a neutral uh, force of evil can you be a neutral force of evil um an unknowable force of evil that you know chaotic neutral <laughs> yeah D and D language. I, don't, I don't think he is i don't think he is neutral no he's not I, I what i meant what i meant was blank or impenetrable he's such an impenetrable evil that you know th this idea of um what his sense of fun would be seems sort of impossible to tap but i don't know in that scene when he's dressing up like a ghost i i see no other reason than you know this is his idea of a joke well that that ends up being that ends up being the room where he does the presentation too, right? So he's going in that room to, I, for lack of a better term, to clean it out so that he can then put it in his own image of how he wants to, to present it. Because he always, don't forget, he had to dig up the, the headstone and the headstone ends up on the bed. So even that's just another thing that along with these various bodies that I've collected, here is also tombstone of my sister it's uh, he well he couldn't get the body i guess so that's why it was in homage yes yeah i guess that's why annie had to be the stand-in i don't i don't know why now we're talking about a variety of the kills here and we brought up bob we have to talk about bob's uh death scene there uh he thinks that somebody's hiding and there is somebody hiding and he comes out and not only does he kill him he stabs him he picks him. This is, I think, when we first know that he is maybe has superhuman strength or some otherworldly, unworldly character uh, characteristics. He doesn't just. I think it might even be one-handed that he grabs him by the neck, brings him up, and then stabs right through him, and he hangs there. So I think that was the first time we saw this. Okay, it's not just some nuts guy. There's other things going on here. It's really the only time you see him have any emotion either. I know it's hard to see emotion through the mask, but he actually stands there and like looks at Bob for a while and actually does like this little head tilt. And you yeah, can see it tilt. off the like the way it's lit. It just looks real creepy. And he's kind of like thinking about what he's just accomplished or did and whether there's remorse there or whether it's uh, I did a good job or depending on whatever is going on in his head. Do you think he like leveled up there though? Do you think he's like, oh, I can do this? <laughs> he got some experience yeah. points. He, uh... Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't I don't chaotic evil. <laughs> I don't know, but I I every time I watch that scene, you kind of watch him like do that little head tilt. It's it's very chilling. He's yes. thinking about what he just did. Yeah, it's a little kiddish, right? It's like what a little kid would do. <laughs> or a dog. It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. getting a lot of similarities there. Well, he was living like a dog, right, for a little bit there in the house. The kill too there is remarkably unrealistic. Right, I mean, he stabs him in like the stomach. There's no blood. Um, he hangs there. He dies immediately. I mean, he dies faster than a bullet wound, right? You know, um, and it's also true with Judith. When he stabs Judith to death and he walks out and you see the knife, there's like a little bit of blood at the end after, you know, hacking this woman to death. Um, and I, I think one of the... the Nine times, Tom. Nine is it times. nine times? Oh, okay. Um, yeah, nine times. There's a little drop of blood at the end of this... 17 inch blade 
Um, and it, it seems like what these movies do and what later movies have picked up on this is that it's really not about the gore. It's about kind of um, creative murder and body count. Uh, sometimes these movies are gory. I think Hellra the Hellraiser series is especially so. But often, and I think this is true of Halloween, it's just it's creativity and body count that really matters in, in uh, a kind of slasher. It's knocking down these bowling pins. Uh, we have one question left. And Tom, would you like to hear the category? Give it to me. Ooh, he's going to get you. It's time for question six. In addition to directing and co-writing Halloween, John Carpenter also wrote and composed the movie's score and soundtrack. The audio components of this film further immersed the audience and, in my opinion, may be the most impactful element used by Carpenter. What do you think is the best example of this usage in the film? This is another subjective question. We are all tied up, by the way. I'm locked in. Locked in. Does it have to be uh, diegetic or does it? It does not. It could be a light motif. It could be diegetic. Uh, a variety of other things I'm sure we'll explore further on future episodes or this present one. I'm, I'm going to lock in with a diegetic sound. This movie does lack diegetic light motifs. My favorite sound in this movie will probably not earn me any points, but I really liked the rain when Loomis and the nurse were outside the mental hospital. They have to talk over this rain that was really loud. And I, I really liked the way they weren't quite shouting, but it distracted you from the actual conversation in a good way that I think the rest of the movie distracts you in a good way, which makes you even more nervous. Um, they do it again outside the hardware store when Lori and Annie are trying to talk to Annie's dad, the sheriff, um, and the sirens are wailing and they just they can't hear each other. But my, my answer is that rain right there towards the beginning of the film. Tom. Jamie Lee Curtis's scream. Her scream, I, I think, is quite memorable. Um, and it, it afforded her an unofficial title. Her marriage to Christopher Guest afforded her an official title, but that's, yeah, she became the scream queen after this. All right, so this movie was kind of a, like a genre-creating one. And since then, a lot of movies have definitely, some of them, good or bad, have definitely looked for the jump scare like things that are, are, are meant to kind of make you kind of like hop in your seat a little bit. Even if you're not scared of the movie entirely, there's that one moment where something kind of swings out at you or pops out at you or comes out of the bushes really quick and gets you. Uh, the score for this movie is fantastic, but I think that it really emphasizes the jump scare the most in what we were talking about, that presentation scene, where Laurie goes into the bedroom sees Annie with Judith's headstone. And then we talked about Bob kind of swinging out of the closet. There's definitely a really loud, obnoxious kind of synthetic sound that screams at the same time. And it happens again when she opens up the closet and sees Linda. And I just think that he had a really, uh, Carpenter had a really good way of making these really obnoxious kind of like squealy sounds that were unsettling, that really made the scene that you're looking at that much more terrifying. Not only that, but also the maybe the beginning of what we would call the jump scare. Even when you were explaining it, I cannot recreate that sound, but I hear it ping in my head. So I'm, I'm going to give the points to Chris for this one. Everyone else, you had great, question, uh, great uh, answers to the question. 
uh, you will get partial points. You'll get one point each. Uh, but of course, due to the power of mathematics, Chris will take down this episode. But I don't want to end it there. I, I really wanted to talk to you guys about the usage of sound and audio components because I'm glad we're kind of ending on this question for the main rounds. I thought it was fantastic. And one of the things I, I found out even when I researched this, when he was first trying to get this out to the studios, the first cut didn't have all of his composition on top of that, all the, uh, the music. And they actually didn't think it was that scary. I can't imagine this movie without the sound, without all of those components. And it's amazing that this went from a movie that had about a 300K budget and was able to worldwide gross like $47 million because of these iconic sounds that even Christian was saying, others have replicated to have that catchy soundtrack, that catchy tone, that catchy theme. But this really started that whole, you know, subgenre of slasher in this formula. You can't think of Friday the 13th without the, that sound in the woods either. Like it's just, it's iconic. And so is the theme to this one. And I think it was around this time where, movie studios and directors and people who are building these things realized how important sound effects actually were and how that could like level up the movie experience, if you will, because and I think that goes with technology. Uh, when my parents were young kids going to movies, they went to the drive-ins and those, they had like a little speaker that was this big. And then you started getting to theaters that had like nice surround sound or a different experience. And I think sound became so much more important. And I think that this one, even though this synthetic kind of sound was more of an 80s vibe, doesn't really, it feels like it's ahead of its time if you really put yourself in a choose. Uh, it, it really, really makes the movie so much better. I think it, I've said it before because I love to say Star Wars. Star Wars is a crappy movie if you don't have John Williams' score. And I feel the same way about this. This movie is not scary as much without that sound. And it also brings you, uh, it reminds me of Psycho. And so much of this movie is in conversation with Psycho, um, and we, we could talk about that, but Psycho also has the very famous use of soundtrack to indicate horror, you know? and I, I think this movie does the same thing with that, um, with that soundtrack, uh, and also similar to Jaws, which we talked about, we talked about that last week, I think, the, the soundtrack can indicate, um, indicate the monster can be the kind of the leitmotif for the, the shark, um, and this that da, 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 is, uh, indicates, indicates Michael, but on top of that, I do think it is is reflecting on on Psycho and how Psycho has the most famous sound effect for kind of a slasher moment when when um, Jamie Lee Curtis's mother is killed in the shower. Yeah, and that that score, I mean, you hear it everywhere now, especially around Halloween, right? You walk into a store, you might hear it you, when you're going trick or treating. People have it playing out of those little things you step on or whatever. Um, and the first time I watched the movie with with my wife. The, the opening credits have that that piano um, playing and you just kind of smile like, oh yeah, that Halloween sound. But this time, the second watch when I put it on, I was drawn right into the tension and fear and terror that I knew I was about to see because of that piano sound. Yeah, I actually wanted to use these those sounds and try to say them as some of the category titles, but I didn't feel I was doing a good enough representation. <laughs> so I had to go a different direction. But when I think of this movie, the, the soundtrack is, is I recall it, and for every scene that I'm watching or thinking about, it's just 
it's amazing how intertwined the music and the sounds are with this specific movie. And again, Chris, you're right with Star Wars. I, I, those movies just, the John Williams score just is infuses in your brain when you're recalling different scenes there. But this one, I almost feel like I'm listening to the soundtrack and then remembering all the sequences. Yeah, there is there isn't a, a John Williams scored movie that you can't automatically hear in your head if somebody says Jaws or Star Wars or Indiana Jones, Indiana Jones like that, yeah. or or the Richard Donner Superman, mm. you immediately hear that song in your head. To go back to what Tom said, uh, I, Psycho is definitely a huge influence on him because even the character Sam Loomis, that is a character from Psycho. That name comes directly from Psycho. Yeah, Sam Loomis is the character who, who restrains Norman Bates at the end. <laughs> Just as, you know, our Sam Loomis restrains michael not really with some lead <laughs> yeah. you know in the casting of jamie lee curtis also you know to to reference uh janet lee okay well guys i i hope you enjoyed these questions and it seems that everyone did enjoy the movie i'm sure we have a few more thoughts to talk about it when we get back from this commercial break we'll jump right into movie ran be right back Talking Pictures Trivia presents a screaming lapel pin production. The Jane of My Youth, a coming-of-age story of young love, read by me, Tom. Chapter 1. A New School Michael hoped to finally ask out Jane. His first year at Evergreen had been very difficult. After enjoying a rather easy, albeit anonymous, social life at his previous school, the junior year transfer had been rather difficult. In his first week, he had gotten into an argument with a lanky but geeky sophomore who had knocked him to the floor. Reputation ruined before it had even been established, Michael spent the rest of the year eating alone, reading alone, being alone. Sometime before the winter break, Michael no longer owned the title of New Kid. That designation had passed to Jane a chess club girl who had moved too late in the year to join the chess club. She sat most days after school at a table in the library next to his. He couldn't tell what she was reading, but he knew it wasn't a magazine, like a lot of people who came into the library. But he couldn't see over the divide between library carols. All he was able to glimpse was her strawberry blonde hair swallowing up the earpieces, pumping unheard mysteries through the eddy of her earlobes. He kept trying to catch her attention. At one point, he purposely dropped a copy of Dante's Inferno next to her carol, trying to impress her. She leaned over, picked it up, and handed it back to him with just a smile. Nothing else. No words were exchanged. Back at home, he thought about how lonely he was, how much he wanted to spend time with her, and he decided the next day, after school at the library, before the start of the weekend, he would finally ask out Jane. This has been a Talking Pictures Trivia Theater production of The Jane of My Youth, a coming-of-age story of young love. This week, Screaming Lapel Pins has half off for our special, The Constipated Armadillo. The Constipated Armadillo. Oh, 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 oh.
That's Screaming Lapel Pins. Pick one up today. And we're back. It's time for Movie Ren. I'm sort of interested in the, the final girl phenomenon that it doesn't technically begin in this movie. There's another movie, I think it's called Black Christmas from 1974, which has a final girl. Um, maybe, you know, maybe I'm getting the name of that wrong. I know it's 1974, um, but this movie popularized it and many, many slasher movies use that final girl formula. There was actually a Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 had a final girl. Yeah, that's, that's right. And that's before this. Yeah, Texas. Yeah, that's 74. It's, yeah, that's also that's right. That's also a final girl. Um, she's a little different in the sense that she kind of gets away by accident as opposed to her own energies. Um, but, you know, Lori is definitely like the the epitome of the final girl. Uh, and we see like Nightmare on Elm Street. I think the first five Nightmare on Elm Streets have a final girl. Um, the first two or three Hellraisers have a final girl. Um, uh, oh God, uh, Friday the Thirteenth one and seven use a final girl. I think maybe eight does too. Um, but yeah, anyway, so I'm I'm rambling now. I was wondering what people thought of that device. I don't mind that device. Uh, I think it. I think it started as being arbitrary. It was just that was the character that survived, and then it grew into the genre, grew into this is the equation. It's the, you know, group of teenagers and a serial killer, and then one girl survives. Like, I think that became the, the Hollywood equation for schlocky October blockbuster. And although, although it fits, the, like, that equation fits to this movie, I don't think this movie was written or done with that in mind. Uh, mm -hmm. But it is it is it is definitely something that permeated throughout the the sequels and the the ones that were trying to mimic this as a successful movie. And there was a reason for that too. These were, for the most part, now later they made some crappy ones, but they were wildly uh, profitable. So they just didn't want to mess with the formula too much to just cranking out those dollars. And again. After all this, then they started making these straight to VHS versions that maybe the quality started to erode even more. But it was just, it was a yeah. I think out. you mentioned before this movie was this movie is actually an independent movie. This was there was no real budget to it. I think you mentioned before 300k was the posted budget yep. for it. So that's like that's next to nothing in movie in movie land. Uh, that's like Blair Witch Project slash Paranormal Activity size budgets with these huge back ends and. Like you said, that that music, this movie is just this is Halloween. Every it's on TV every year this time of year. It's it's a catch cow for next to nothing. I think I saw somewhere that I think the and I could be wrong in this, but I think the biggest expense was uh, Donald Pleasant's got like twenty thousand dollars. I think it, I think and it was like less than two. Well, weeks it, of I know that they shot it on location, so all those houses were already pre-built. So I mean, like whatever you had to pay them, the Myers house was already. Uh, dilapidated. They didn't have to window dress that at all. It was already abandoned, so they had to pay next to nothing to shoot in the Myers house. And you, if you if you think about it, you have two houses. You have the house that Tommy's in. You have the house across the street, and you have some stuff on the street in the cars and walking down the sidewalks. There really isn't too many pure locations that they had to pay for. So next to next to nothing. So I just looked. It, it was uh, Donald Pleasant's got paid twenty thousand dollars for five days' work. Yeah, in, in 1978 money, so not too bad, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, to just to kind of revise my question, it's kind of a, uh, 
a sort of coming of age movie in part. Um, and she sort of builds the skills to survive. So she's this already, we know about her already that she's very intelligent, right? That she's, she can't get a date cause she's too smart, she says. Um, and even though she doesn't initially believe the children, once Michael comes, she's kind of able to develop quickly the skills to survive. Although her her actions at the end, um, you know, maybe maybe put that in doubt. But I knew at least some critics have read this as a sort of buildings roman, which is um, the story of somebody coming of age and and developing a skill. Uh, and I was wondering what people thought of that because, in part, I want to believe that because she is a highly competent person. But the, you know, the the very ending maybe draws that into question. I think her skill in this movie was to have a knife in her hand and then throw it down right next to where the murderer actually still is. That was her skill at the end of this movie. <laughs> yeah. But Tom, apart from movies, are there any other uh, narratives or literature that have the the ending woman? <laughs> in in Lord of the Rings, right? You have Aemir kills the the Witch King, so you can argue that she was the only one able to do that, but that it, that's not quite the same as the only one surviving. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I mean, you have... Hunger Games! Maybe <laughs> Hunger Games, like, yeah. Fine, but but um, I, I'm just trying to think like a, a apocalyptic movies where you have uh, only a female survivor. And this is also not an apocalyptic movie, right? It's just like... I mean, I can think of... Um, outside of this genre, Alien, which comes a year later. Mm. But Alien also does the same thing. And Aliens does also. I mean, as Michael Ben's character That's true, survives. actually. Yeah. Um, yeah, Ripley. But Ripley, Ripley is sort of able to um, be the, the one person who's, you know, to, able to live. And I, She actually takes on the evil, too, yeah. in, uh, in Alien. Yeah. And I, I, Laurie kind of does also, right? Um, you know she has to to fight back against them, and I think Chris, though your point your point is well taken, which is you know she she just sort of blindly stabs at him with stuff, and it and it happens to work. Um, that, that I don't know that I necessarily have anything to say about the the final girl like trope in movies, but I do know that horror movies are typically more attended by females. And I think that that is because of that trope that you that you brought up here, that the final girl is kind of like a coming of age story and that taking taking control of a, of a crazy situation for themselves and being the the protagonist to being being the one that survives this grisly this grisly thing that happens in all of these movies. Uh, I know when you look at like box office and you look at demographics for different genres i know horror a lot of times more female viewers go to see horror movies than male view and i think it's because of this this connection that's really interesting i never thought of these as like uh the precursor to female empowerment type movies that we're seeing a lot more female leads these days that that's interesting to especially when these were made in the late 70s early 80s and and what's interesting about that too is it, in um in a lot of the things I was reading, kind of journal articles and stuff, and and prepping for this episode, is there's a real clash between this is, um, you know, about kind of women fighting the gays, the male gays, or, or whatever, uh, and this is incredibly misogynistic, and and the final girl trope just sort of feeds the misogyny, or the final girl trope isn't real. It's just we want to spend more time with women, so you know, that's that's the last person alive so we could spend more time with them and there, there's a kind of butting heads between those two 
worldviews, though the sort of more empowerment thing, though I wouldn't necessarily call it empowerment, but the, uh, the, the more feminist angle seems to have taken the upper hand in a lot of these arguments. Um, and I, I'm not quite sure on what side I fall, because when we look at uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, not to quote, keep quoting things outside of, of this, but this is such a genre movie that it's kind of hard to not talk about the genre more broadly. Um, but in the Nightmare on Elm Street series, the, the women, the final girls in that series all learn something about Freddy in order to defeat him, right? They're all kind of more actively involved in a sort of education. And oftentimes the final girl from a previous, you know, previous movie in the series is educating the, the girl in the, the present movie in the series. Like this is how we deal with Freddy. Um, and this happens a little later in the Halloween series, but I'm not quite sure it's happening here. It does seem more like Laurie survives because, you know, she's just sort of not busy doing something else. It might be a little more, a little more random. I mean, in later, later versions, we learn she's actually his long lost sister. And this is, you know, there's more, more of that is built into it, but I'm I'm not entirely sure for this for this present film if she is exactly the same kind of female figure we see in uh, the Nightmare series. See, I, I agree because I don't think those would have existed if this didn't exist. So I think it was just an evolution of the slasher horror subgenre and them expanding on it. So this is kind of you know the beginning point to all of these and then they said okay we, we're going to kind of keep this formula but we got to keep it fresh somehow and i think that just kind of developed yeah I, th I think it was just a byproduct it, it happened this way and that it like nick said it is what became the blueprint for the future talking about jamie lee curtis's role in this movie what i always find interesting is in tv and film usually teens are played by people in their mid late 20s one of the things that actually surprised me is i actually thought Jamie Lee Curtis was in her mid-20s or something when this movie was made. It turns out she was the only actress that actually was in her teens. She was 19 when this was filmed. And I actually caught me off guard. I thought she was older. So I, I just thought that was an interesting little tidbit. And going back to when I was talking about the low budget, I was looking this up. The whole movie was filmed in 20 days just to give you an idea of what they were working with here and really putting in that budget and the time frame in perspective, adding on that layer of uh, sound effects and adding on that layer of soundtrack and theme. It's amazing what they really came up with here. Yeah. She had no film credits leading up to this. She was on TV, I think, and a little, a little thing, but, uh, and she had the audition like three or four times for it. I don't think John Carpenter wanted her right away, but they screen tested her. They screen tested all the actresses that were up for it, whose others' names I can't recall. Uh, but when they screen tested her, it was the scene where she's looking out the window and sees Michael in the blankets. Like it's, they, they were screen testing that, and that was the last of the auditions. And apparently just the way her face emoted, that fear of being looked at through the window, like apparently that was what sold Carpenter on her as the, as the lead. Yeah, Jamie Lee Curtis was great in this movie, although there was one missed opportunity. There's one scene where she's in the closet, and as we know from Broken Blossoms, 
if you can get that closet scene right, you could really take over. And she did not do the 360 um, spin around there in that closet. I did miss that. I, I did think that was also a miss there. Yeah. Uh, what I will say is I actually thought that was actually one of the weaker sequences in the movie, in my opinion. Like she kind of hides in a closet and he can't get into the closet. She did try to trick him. She did open the window leading outside first and then go into the closet to hide. So, I mean, like she was trying to deceive him, but he, he figured it out. I, I, do, I do think her stabbing him with a twistable uh, hanger was probably the weakest of the injuries that he had to sustain. And apparently the one that kept him on the floor for the longest, it seemed. He got shot six times, fall off a roof, and he's up in like 30 seconds. He gets stabbed in, in the face with a hanger, and he's there for minutes while, he, while she's directing the kids where to go and stands there in the doorway. You can't kill the boogeyman. Yeah, I, I think the, the, the problem with a lot of this, and this is also, I mentioned David Cronenberg at the beginning. Um, he has a movie like this, you know, kind of um, a person-by-person -person horror film in an in a enclosed space called Shivers, which I would recommend, which came out around this time, um, is that I think Carpenter's very smart, and I think that the, the stuff about Laurie and her agency and all that is, is very interesting, um, but it, it's, he's also somewhat limited as a filmmaker, and so you get things like the closet scene, where he wants to show her as this, I think he wants to show her as this like competent person who who's able to handle the situation, um, you know, an admirable person. But the the actual mechanics of her competency are sort of stupid, you know. It's a, like a hanger, or like when she lightly stabs him and he falls down for for five minutes, and she doesn't bother to look at him or leave the room. She just sort of sits on the floor and waits for um for the scare to manifest i i think this is where that the kind of weakness in slasher movies and heavy genre movies comes in um is that the ability to make characters are sort of limited they're limited by the circumstances which which interests the director and the filmmakers a lot more to go back to the next thing about budget i also read that uh all the actors and actresses minus michael and I think Donald Pleasance, everybody else had to bring their own wardrobe. Jamie Lee's wardrobe was actually purchased by her for like a hundred bucks at a JC Penney's. Like, so all the clothes that you see in the handbag she's holding, like that's all her stuff that she bought and brought. So that's another way you get your budget under $300,000. You make your actors buy their own wardrobe. Yeah. Cheapness is kind of fun too with movies, you know, kind of recording how they were able to, to pull this off. Um, God, it's actually probably easier to make a cheap movie now than back then, just because I, you know, I can think of like um, uh, this is this is super tangent, but uh, Tangerine, the movie that came out in two thousand eighteen, uh, that was made on an iPhone, <laughs> um, that won a ton of awards. But I, I, you know, I was wondering what the budget of that movie is. I'm sure it's under three hundred thousand dollars, and that's in two eighteen money. It's all it's all the film. Uh, there's no film anymore. Everything's digital. So it, I, I want I, I would say that probably a sixth of this budget was just for the film stock that they put in the camera, let alone equipment that they rented or locations they rented or actors they paid. Just because that physical thing was a limiting factor for movies at the time. I'll do you one better, Chris? Uh, from what I read, it was half of the budget was spent on Panavision cameras so that they could have the. Uh, was it 2.35 by one scope, the ratio? Mm -hmm. So half of that 
was just the filming. It's really wide scope. God, this must be so much more enjoyable in a theater to watch, right on a really big screen. Yeah, no, that that's an interesting about like what kind of watching the the B films of then, the the B films of today are kind of much more. They they're they're less likely to be genre films. This is this is my hypothesis. I can't prove it, uh, or I guess I could, but I haven't, and I, I won't. Um, is is that like the B movies of of the old, like the cheap movies of the seventies, and and fifties and sixties are genre films. The cheap movies of today are like um, going to Sundance festivals. That they've gone. I thought you were gonna say Netflix would just buy them. Or maybe yeah, or maybe Netflix. I mean, I actually think that Netflix is sort of Prime. Yeah, yeah. like a lot of those streaming services are kind of revising the cheap genre movie. Like, there's a lot of um, Bloomhouse, you know, Bloomhouse Productions does these kind of cheap horror movies um, that Netflix buys a lot. Uh, look into them. They're, some of them are really fun, um, but I think a lot of the the kind of non-affiliated movies like Tangerine are sort of non-genre. Uh, and I think that might be an interesting change over the last 50 or so years. Do you call uh, Reservoir Dogs a genre movie? Does that fit the older style? I, I think it's a non-conventional, unconventional genre movie in the sense that it recognizes gangster tropes and purposely violates them. I couldn't think of anything more modern than that that may have started a genre. Yeah, I, just, I, I think of Tangerine, which is about... Uh, um, transgendered people who hang out at a, a donut shop who want to, you know, kind of beat up a, a boyfriend who cheated on them. I mean, you know, there's no real genre that that goes into. Um, but that was kind of, the, you know, this this really big splash independent film. I guess maybe uh, Blair Witch Project is really genre-y and also completely independent. I just wanted to mention that I thought it was interesting uh, when they're watching the movies on Halloween, the two kids, one of the movies that they actually watch in black and white is the original The Thing. And uh, just thought it was funny that, you know, four years later after this movie comes out, John Carpenter obviously loves that movie because he puts it in here, but he does the new version of the 1982 version of The Thing with Kurt Russell that follows up. I thought, I don't know when I recognized that. I didn't definitely didn't recognize it when I was younger, but I recognized it relatively not too long ago, I guess, that he put that little Easter egg in there. I really want to do this movie. I like this movie. Let me let me remake it. We were talking about the thing with one of our other friends who's done a few episodes, Doug, and I think that was one that was a, a contender for discussion. And that's why when it came up again in this one, I'm like, wait a minute, what was the timeline of when this movie came out and the thing? And then I realized it was the older one. <laughs> I was going to say, like, what, one thing I would recommend, I, I've taught this book before and it's interesting to look at in terms i think of this horror movie because the the kind of sexuality and is so important here and sort of the the boundary between family and and, and kind of sexual expression or being sexual comes up in this movie is this is a kind of famous book by julia kristeva called the powers of horror which look at i give this kind of post freudian reading of slasher movies and kind of the blood and guts thing of it um, and how you know identity is formed out of this process of abjection um, and that's if you know for anybody who's listening to that that's a really fun albeit difficult book to to go through and then think about a movie like this because um yeah because the, the kind of the freudian stuff i think of michael stabbing his naked sister to death is uh 
it, it, it provides a new lens for it, let's just say. I'll have to take a look at that book. I thought it was interesting that they had the credits wrong. And I watched the, the, I watched the Blu-ray of this was the 35th anniversary edition uh, in the credits. So if you do the math, Michael kills his sister when he's six. And then Loomis says it's 15 years later. So math tells you that Michael is 21 in, in the thing, uh, in the movie. But in the credits, he's actually listed as Michael Myers 23. Like they get it wrong. And they don't even bother to go back and change it later. 35 years later, they still know that that math is wrong. And it comes up again when they do the second one. Uh, I was telling this to Nick. Uh, when they did the second, when, they, they, when Halloween became popular, the second one, they wanted to put the original Halloween on TV, on cable, like they did with all those movies back in the day. But it wasn't long enough because the runtime of this movie is only an hour and a half and it needed to be, I think it's like an hour and 35 minutes to fit the two hour window that cable channels wanted. So they went back and filmed stuff with Donald Pleasance and you find out that yes, he's supposed to be 21. They're transporting him from the, uh, the asylum because he's going to stand trial at the age of 21. And uh, you also find out his middle name is Aubrey, which I, which really, really jumped out at me for some reason. I'm not sure exactly why they felt it necessary to give him a middle name. But they 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 say out his full name as Michael Aubrey Myers. That so has I, to be a reference to something. It's got to be. I don't know. It has to be. We have to look that up. Also, if you watch the TV version that was on back then, they also also they also tell you for the first time that he's going home for his sister, which is a kind of like an Easter egg to lead you into episode two, where he actually does go and like they you find out that Laurie is his sister. Well, guys, this was a great one. Uh, I'd like to congratulate Chris once again for taking down the Halloween episode, although I think he's been preparing his whole life for this one. so It's been quite a few years I've been preparing for this moment. There you go. Well, again, Chris, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Thank you very much for having us. It was great to do another episode, and I look forward to the next one if you'll have me. Of course. Thanks to our vivacious editor, KJ. <laughs> who masterfully crafts these episodes. I'd also like to acknowledge IMDb, which is a great resource for movie information. Check out our website, TalkingPicturesTrivia.com, for more information about us and our episodes. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher, as well as our YouTube channel. We're extremely grateful for any positive reviews, as those help others like you find us. If you like what you hear, remember to like and subscribe to our show. Join us next time when we discuss Cage's recommendation from Spain in 2007, Time Crimes. Should be a fun one. See you then. Ding, 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 ding. Join us next time when we discuss Cage's recommendation from Spain in the year 2027. Sorry, I didn't read this point ahead of time. Uh, 2007. Okay. Join us next time when we discuss Cage's recommendation from Spain. Why do you say in the year 2007? <laughs> You, you want me to put in the year of our Lord? Is that a better? <laughs> no, I just didn't. <laughs> it just seems weird to me. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> like, I don't know. It was getting biblical on the year. <laughs> the year 2007. <laughs> from all the way from Europe. From the mountaintop. Yay. Okay. Join us next time when we discuss KJ's recommendation from Spain in 2007. It still sounds weird to me. <laughs> I don't know why it sounds weird to me. Good luck getting all that crap. <laughs> no problem. Apparently, I'm a little tired by the time we get to late night on Sunday. At, at a certain point, I, I, I pinned KJ's video so I could watch him kind of like zone in and out. <laughs>
I was a little tongue-tied today myself. <laughs>